you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter 5. We'll uh, be our last morning, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read them for you. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Now, Father, it is indeed a privilege uh, to have your word, and we thank you for how you care for your people. We thank you, Father, for the precious blood that you've purchased us with. We thank you for our great chief shepherd, our shepherd, the good shepherd who laid down his life for us. We thank you, Father, that he had the power to lay down his life and the power to pick it up again. He has taken up his life and he reigns and he is uh, with us in authority. Lord, we thank you, Father, for your plan to care for your people. And we thank you, Lord, that you do it in a way that brings glory to only you uh, by using fallen men to care for fallen men. We thank you, Lord, that you are the only one who looks good in the system and that there's nothing we can boast in, there's nothing we can take credit for, there's nothing we can take pride in. Now, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to find great comfort in your plan for your church. Lord, that though it is your plan for fallen men to lead fallen men, uh, Lord, that you do this as we clothe ourselves with humility. We thank you, Father, as we look at this hard command, and being humble is hard. It goes against everything that is unlike us. It's, it's, it is what we needed to be saved from, the pride, uh, Lord. And yet there's so much hope because Jesus Christ was humble, and he is humble, and he is reigning now, and we've been united with him. So thank you, Father, that through Christ we can indeed grow in humility. We pray, Father, that that would uh, really be increasingly characterizing our body and that that would be the fruit of your word being preached this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last three weeks, we've seen God's design for the oversight of his church, for his church to be healthy, for his church to be a place where he has brought the glory. We began in verse 1 of chapter 5, and we saw the encouragement that God gives there to the elders, to the men who, have, uh, who meet qualifications laid down in God's word to care for God's flock. We continue in verses 2 and 4 to look at what an elder's motivation is in caring for God's flock. Last week, we explored the elder's responsibility to shepherd God's flock. And because that was such a common known metaphor in, in the ancient world of, of shepherding, we kind of unpacked that some. And we talked about the shepherd is responsible to know his sheep and to watch his sheep and to pursue his sheep and protect his sheep, to nurture his sheep, to feed his sheep, to sacrifice for his sheep. And we saw the elder's responsibility there, a humbling responsibility, which we can only do uh, through God's grace working through us. But we also saw that the flock have a responsibility as well. And the flock's responsibility is, and in verse 5 we just read, although Peter specifically addresses the younger men, to be submissive to the elders. To submit means to willingly place yourself under someone else. For you to submit your will to their will. And as we explored the sheep's role to submit to their shepherd, we remind ourselves that we never submit when a shepherd would have us disobey God's word. That if you're ever put in a place, and by God's grace, it'll never be us. But if we were ever to ask you to disobey God's word, you would say, no, we can't. So you never submit to the point of disobedience. But we did leave on a bit of a cliffhanger. 
that there may be some fear that some of you experience when we talk about authority, and that may be because of previous church experiences. Maybe some of you have experienced this tension in previous churches where, where you were called to submit to men who you didn't feel qualified to lead. Or maybe the elders were bringing the church in a direction that you disagree with. Or maybe you thought, thought that they've gone beyond God-given authority in his word, in scripture. You've been concerned that they've become legalistic in their leading, or manipulative, or untrustworthy. And those are some big what-ifs. What are we to do? And I promise that God has a plan for how this relationship between sheep and shepherd ought to work. And we know that we're sinful. We know that shepherds do not always shepherd as they ought, and sheep do not always submit as they ought. But God has a plan for how this relationship between sheep and shepherd ought to work. It's a relationship of leading and submitting. In 1 Peter 5, verse 5, the second half, Peter finishes this, this, this section of instruction and says, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And as we explore this relationship between sheep and shepherd, and we look at this command, all of you be humble. All of you. To elders, to the shepherds and the sheep, all of you be humble. It is, it is important, I think, that we remind ourselves that God's shepherds, that, that, that the men that God has called to shepherd his church are biblically qualified men of exemplary character. That that is what a shepherd is. That's God's definition of a shepherd. A shepherd is not someone just who's been given a role. A shepherd isn't someone who takes a mantle upon themselves. A shepherd isn't someone who gets behind a pulpit. A shepherd is a role that is determined by God. And so I'm going to read for you what, this, what these qualifications are. Because I think when you look at these qualifications, you're going to say, those are the men that I can submit to. And I think it takes away a lot of the fear of the shepherding relationship. So let's listen to what that shepherding qualifications are in Titus 1, verses 7 through 9. It's not the first time I've read these, but it is good for our, our hearts. For the overseer, the, 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 the elder, must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not quick to get in fights, not fond of sordid gain, not in it for the money. You must be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That is what an elder is. That is what a shepherd is. And so when God's word calls you to submit to shepherds, those are the men that he's calling you to submit to. And when we prove ourselves to not be those men, me and the other elders of Cornerstone Bible Church, you need to follow Matthew 18 with us. You need to come and confront our sin. That is your responsibility. If you see us failing in any one of these, come one-on-one -on -one and say, brother, I see sin in your life. And that's really how we'll be the people that you'll be happy to submit to. 1 Timothy 3, 2-7, I want to read as well. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The context of the command to submit to the elders is biblically qualified shepherds. And we've already seen that in 1 Peter 5. It talks about them not being men who, who are in it for sordid gain. 
not being men who lorded over those who exercise dominion. But I just want to encourage you with the stringent qualifications that God has. Now, these are qualifications that you can meet. This is what God's grace enables mature Christians to become. All of us can become this, except for maybe the gift of a teaching, which is one of the gifts that God gives. But the character is something that all of us can have. So really, I need to hold you to the character. You need to hold me to that character, though. I say that because it is essential that we remember that God defines what a shepherd is. It's not because someone puts reverend before a name. It's not because you have a plaque on a door. It's not because everyone makes a vote. It's not because you stand behind a pulpit. It's not because you have some kind of authority given to you. God defines what the shepherds are, and these are the men, the kind of men that, that you're called to submit to. But anyways, how does that happen? Well, it's going to require us all to clothe ourselves with humility. It's going to take the elders' humility to shepherd you well. It's going to take humility for us to humble ourselves when we mess up. And it's going to take your humility in submitting to our leadership and for you to be humble when you mess up. And that's what's going to happen. So let's, let's, let's look at our big idea this morning. God's church will continue to enjoy God's grace when both elders and sheep clothe themselves in humility. God's church will continue to enjoy God's grace when both elders and sheep clothe themselves in humility. So let's look at, at, at the requirement for, for humility first in the beginning, in the middle of verse 5. It says, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward, toward, one, toward one another. This is the third command we see in the section. The first was for elders to shepherd. The second was for sheep to submit. And the third is for all of you to clothe yourselves with humility. One commentator talks about this word, clothing yourselves. It's a strong term, he writes, the root of which referred to the apron that a slave or herdsman tied on over their tunic to keep it from being soiled. It was an apron. And many commentators have speculated that maybe, that maybe Peter's remembering Jesus and Jesus's humility when he tied that towel around himself when he washed the disciples' feet the night before his crucifixion. We don't know. We're to clothe ourselves humbly as servants, as slaves. Now, there's no limitation here on who the all are and who the one another are. Whether we are called to shepherd or called to submit to the shepherds, we must all clothe ourselves with humility. We're all to show humility to one another without exception. Sheep are showing humility to other sheep. Shepherds, humility to other shepherds. Shepherds to sheep and sheep to shepherds. Our, the, 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 the aroma of this room and the aroma of our care groups ought to be humility. When you walk in, you should smell the humility. It's what we clothe ourselves in. We don't dress up in ties, although I do. Our church clothes aren't fancy. It is humility. That, that's how we come dressed. The idea behind the word translated humility is lowliness. To be humbled is to be brought low. And if someone humbles you, they bring you low. One can be brought low through force, like someone who's forced to bow before a king. They have been humbled. Or one can be brought low by circumstances, like a rich man who loses his job, he becomes impoverished. He used to have such wealth, but now he's been brought low. But to be humble is to bring oneself low. To willingly place yourself below someone else for their good and for God's glory. We will not clothe ourselves with humility toward one another until we have been humbled before God and by God. See, humility begins with a recognition of God's holiness and our sinfulness with a great distance between how exalted God is, how holy he is, how perfect he is, how grand he is, and how sinful we are. Jesus wanted to be used in those who needed to be humbled. In Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, it tells how Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They were not humble. They looked at themselves in the mirror and said, I'm pretty good. I'm glad I'm not like that person. Jesus told the, par 
tells a parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a religious leader, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. There's no humility there. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. One of those men left right with God, having been declared righteous, expressing through faith his contrition before God, his understanding of who God was so that he can't even look up to God. God, be merciful to me, to the the sinner. And that work is the work that God has to do in our hearts. None of us will willingly do that. That is the work of God's grace in our hearts. As he opens our eyes, as he takes away the blindness, he reveals himself in his glory. He reveals himself in his goodness and his righteousness. And we're crumpled before him. That, you know, Simon Peter, uh, who wrote this letter, got a little bit of that humbling. Uh, uh, after he sees Jesus's miraculous catch of fish in Luke 5, 8. And Simon Peter saw that he fell down at Jesus's feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And that is what humility is. God, I can't be in your presence. I am a sinful man. I've, 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 I've been revealed. I've been exposed like Isaiah was in Isaiah 6, 5. After he sees the vision of the pre-incarnate Christ in the temple, his glory filling the temple, And then he says, Isaiah says, woe woe is me for I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm unraveling here. I'm falling apart. I can't stand because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And that is where humbling starts. We've seen God exalted and us devastated. And that true humility leads us to see what our spiritual condition is. This is what we pray for our children. I'm, I, I'm working on memorizing these with, 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 with my girls now, these beatitudes, these, these, these attitudes of humility. It's exemplified, humility is exemplified in Jesus' description of those who have been blessed by God in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is what humility is. It's to come before God and realize that I am completely impoverished, that I have nothing to bring to God, nothing at all to the table. My, I, 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 and, and I talked to the girls about trying to get into Disneyland and having no money. They've got nothing to get into the magic kingdom. They're, they're poor, they're impoverished, they, 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 their pockets are empty, they have nothing. Well, those who would be part of the kingdom of heaven must, all, anyone who's part of the kingdom of heaven is those who have become poor in spirit, realizes that they don't have what God requires. They don't have the righteousness that he requires. They don't have the holiness that re- he requires. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. They, they are devastated because they've seen God and his goodness and they fall short and, and they mourn because of who they are and they see their sin exposed. Blessed are the gentle and or meek, I like better. It's not just gentle, it gives a bad idea. The meek understand, I don't deserve anything. I don't have a right to anything. It's that humility. It's the humility of those who are blessed because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They, they're like, I don't have the righteousness which God requires. I don't please him the way that I ought. And it says they shall be satisfied. And this is the good news that those who are humbled, are the blessed. Those are those who are part of the kingdom of heaven, who shall be comforted, who do inherit the earth, and whose hunger and thirsting for righteousness is satisfied. And that is what humility does, is it brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ in desperate need of a savior. Humility brings us to the cross. Humility brings us to hope in Christ alone. And if your hope this morning is not in Christ alone, If he is not your only hope, if you are not relying completely on his death in your place, then you've not been humbled yet. 
You can't clothe yourselves with humility before men because you've not been humbled before God. But there's hope for you when you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let, let's, let's, let's talk about what this, what is humility more? Like, what is, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about, we're talking about how it happens. But what's at the heart of it? What's the, what's the nature of humility? What's the nature of pride? Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says, pride seeks to un-God God. Pride seeks to un-God God. And humility, on the other hand, exalts God as God. Uh, some of you have uh, read a, a book called the, the Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scott. He has a chapter there on pride and, and humility. And he does something really interesting there that's, that's changing my life. It's changing my thinking. M maybe for some of you, it's like I learned that years ago. But for me, it's exposing all kinds of pride. He uses Romans 11, uh, particularly verse 36, to, to explain what the nature of pride and humility is. So I'm going to read from 1133 to 36. It has been, been thought-provoking for me. Uh, by God's grace, it'll continue to be life-transforming, and maybe God's grace he will use it for you. If, 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 if you don't have the book, I would encourage you to get it. And if you're like, I'm not going to be a husband, then there's a, a small chapter uh, from, from, from that book that it's called, I, th I think it's called from, 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 from Pride to, to, to Humility. That, that's, that's been published by itself. So Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. And so some of this is going to be a mix of, of me ad-libbing and, and, and some quoting. But first, let's see what Scripture says. Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Then verse 36, for from him, from, from God, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So what is at the heart of pride and humility? Well, see, pride at its most basic competes with God for ownership and glory. So pride sees what is commendable, what is praiseworthy as being not from him, from God, but from self. Not through God, but through self, and not to God, or not for God, but for self. Pride sees self as the source of what is good, and self as a source of what is right, and sources the, the source, pride sees self as a source of what's praiseworthy. Pride sees self as the accomplisher of anything that's, that, that's worthwhile to accomplish. Pride sees self and I've got a quote here, is, is, is that self should be the benefactor of all good. So here you've got self saying that from me is everything, and through me is everything, and to me is everything. It's all about me. I thought, and, and I don't, in a sense, I don't even want to step on toes. It's just a cultural phrase, man cave, right? We, we, we have these, men have man caves where they have their big televisions and their comfy chairs, maybe a cooler for pop and whatever, um, their man cave. Well, like, it's kind of startling in itself. Is that really about from me and through me and to me? Is this all about me? Is this a God devoid room? Now, I'm not saying it is. You can totally justify that as this is about God's glory. But is it? It's just a little picture of what we do. Humility, though, sees all things as being from God. God is the source of all things through God, that nothing is accomplished without God, except through God and to God, that he is the direction of all things, that he's the purpose of all things, that everything is about his glory. So the humble person, the humble person wants to see God get the glory for what is from God and what is through God. Pride is a worldview opposed to God. It's a worldview that's centered around self. Humility is a worldview that's centered around God instead of self. So to clothe ourselves with humility, it must begin with this radical God-dependence, with this God-centeredness, with this desire for God's glory. We can't put on humility if we're not committed to Romans 11.36. If you have areas of your day 
Maybe it's that sweet hour when the children fall asleep before you fall asleep. If you have young kids, you know it's a beautiful hour. You, you crave that hour. Some of you don't know that yet. It's, it's, it's magical. You can't wait for it. But if that isn't about from God and through God and to God, it's just an idolatrous hour. It's a proud hour. See, humility is what, how does God want me to take this hour which is from his hand and which is through him and which is for his glory? I'm not saying what you can and can't do during that hour, but can you say that that hour, that day, this upcoming week, that, 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 that there's no rebel strongholds in my schedule. There's no rebel strongholds in my budget. There's no rebel strongholds in my TV viewing. All of this is for, from him and through him and to him. The, those who are humble before God will be humble before men. And these traits are inseparable. Jesus does something that is fascinating. So, so we, 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 we already saw in Luke 18 at the end of the, the, the parable of the Pharisee and, and the tax collector. In Luke 18, verse 14, how he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And it's very clear there that he's talking about relationship with God, right? He who humbles himself before God is going to be exalted by God. But listen to what Jesus does in Luke 14, verses 7 through 11. Luke 14, verses 7 through 11. Jesus began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them. So he, he notices that people are like pushing each other around for the best spot. Like, well, see the bride and groom up there? I, I want to sit up right next to them. Oh, no, no, no. Well, I think you should be one over because, you know, I've known them longer or whatever the scene is. And Jesus says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. So that one, when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Jesus is talking about our horizontal relationships there. It's a very simple thing about wanting a seat of honor, to, 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 to be noticed for where you're sitting. It could be being noticed for the way that we dress, being noticed for our spiritual giftedness, being noticed for the way that we raise our kids. It could be any number of, uh, of idolatrous desires. But then Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Bam, it's the same thing he says at the end of that parable in Luke 18. Right here, it is about our vertical relationship. Our clothing ourselves with humility with one another is inseparable with our humility before God. We display our humility before God by our humility with one another. That's why Jesus can say about these people here, the ones who exalt himself will be humbled. They're going to be exposed as those who were proud, ultimately those who didn't know me. These are the kinds of, of, of people who say, God, I'm, th I'm thankful I'm not like other men. See, Jesus is more than giving great advice about where to sit. The same heart attitude that wants to grab the seat from someone else is the same heart attitude that wants to say, God, I'm glad I'm not like other men. Humility vertically is inseparable from humility horizontally. So what does clothing ourselves in humility look like? Humility is not about making some self-deprecating jokes. Humility is being a servant. In Mark 10, verses 35 to 45, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Peter was there. When he talks about humility, I'm sure this was in the background. James and John, two of Peter's best friends, 
one of whom has been killed by now. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And he, they said to him, Grant that we may sit one in your right hand and one in your left in your glory. We're jumped down to verse 41. Hearing this, the ten, including Peter, began to feel indignant with James and John. Then Jesus, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And then Jesus says in verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that is what humility looks like. Humility looks most of all like the Lord Jesus, who came to give his life as a ransom, to come not to be served, but to serve. And that is what humility is amongst us. We clothe ourselves with humility by being each other's servants by being used in one another's lives in whatever way we can to help see them become as much like Christ as possible. It is to be devoted to one another's growth in Christ-likeness. To be a servant in any way that we can. That's what greatness is, and we can't become that without Jesus Christ giving his life as a ransom for us. There's no greater picture of what humility looks like than Jesus Christ. No greater passage on humility than Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Philippians 2, verse 3. It's tough to read almost. Do nothing from selfishness. What What does that mean? How many times a day do I do something from selfishness? Really, do nothing from selfishness? No web surfing from selfishness? No eating from selfishness? Like, what does that mean? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is what humility looks like. I feel like just reading it again. If you want to know what humility looks like, this is what humility looks like. This is how we clothe ourselves with humility. We can't do this on our own. We can only do this through the Lord Jesus Christ through our union with him. It's only by our union with him that we can become like him. Are you committed to clothe yourselves with humility? You see how essential this is for this relationship between shepherd and sheep to work. Shepherds are going to make mistakes. Sheep are going to make mistakes. Shepherds are going to sin. Sheep are going to sin. We need to be used in one another's lives. We need to be each other's servants, each other's slaves being poured out, as Paul says, as the drink offering and the sacrifice of the service of the saints. Here's some questions to ask yourself, and these I am kind of uh, uh, launching from uh, some some questions that Stuart Scott has in, in, in the book. Question to ask yourself, do you see yourself as better than others? Are you often comparing yourself to others, rating yourself? Maybe you're comparing the behavior of your kids to their kids. The consistency of your quiet time to their quiet times. Your evangelistic zeal to theirs. Your wisdom to their wisdom. Do you see yourself as better than others? How are you doing at listening? When talking, do you dominate the conversation? Do other people have a hard time being heard when you're speaking? Are you the hero of every conflict? The one who's always hurt, always right? Are your thoughts stuck on how you deserve better than what you get? Or how everything would really be done better if it were done your way? Do you apologize 
Are you afraid of seeing your failures? This is how we clothe ourselves with humility. Are you compassionate towards those that you see as weak, who don't match up to your standards, or do you think, I'm glad I'm not like them? When you're making a choice, are you, are you totally confident that you've already gained all the wisdom that there is to be had? Has your decision been made before hearing others who are involved? Do you come to the table already knowing what you're going to do? Are you teachable? When you look in the mirror, and I don't mean a physical mirror, but when you evaluate yourself, are, are, are you taken with your you-ness, your uniqueness? Whether you see yourself as especially gifted in a certain way, or you know that you're really smart, or you've got a lot of wisdom, or you're a really compassionate person, is that view of yourself, is it true or is it inflated? Or maybe you're just simply self-focused and that you're always, oh, I don't match up to anyone else. Do you buck against authority? Do you resist instruction? I know that those are a lot of questions there. Maybe jotted down one or two of them. It's been a humbling week for me. It needs to continue. You can see why we're commanded to clothe ourselves with humility. Naturally, by birth, our interactions are from us and through us and to us. Without Jesus Christ, we come into a room seeking to be served rather than to serve. So that's our responsibility for humility. Let, let, let's see God's response to humility at the end of verse 5. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter explains why the sheep must put on humility, why they have to be humble. And it's rooted in God's, in God's attitude, in his, in, his dis, in his disposition to the humble. And so Peter here quotes from the from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Proverbs 3, verse 34. The Greek word translated proud originally meant uh, outstanding or distinguished, that God is opposed to those who are distinguished. Well, no, he's talking about, and the word changed usage over time, not just who are outstanding or who are distinguished and those who view themselves that way. So he's talking about the arrogant or the boasters, the arrogant and the boasters are those who take credit for what is from God and take credit for what is through God. Those who are taking credit for what is, what is ultimately to God's glory, like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.30, the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Or maybe it's an area of our lives. Look at my savings account that I've built. Look at the children I've raised. Look at my discipline. It's this arrogant and boasting attitude is in Acts 12, verses 22 to 23 of King Herod. King, King Herod had given, I guess, a pretty good speech, and the people are crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. He did not give God the glory. God is opposed to the, to the proud. He is hostile toward them. Pride puts you on a collision course towards God. Listen to what some of the Proverbs say, verses 16, verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Surely he will not be unpunished. What, what terrifying language. If you are not hiding in the Lord Jesus Christ today, if he is not your refuge, if he is not your only hope, you should be terrified because we are all naturally proud. You're an abomination to the Lord, he says. Proverbs 6, verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Number one, haughty eyes. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray for our kids Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. 
See, God will not let man persist in robbing glory of him. So when we are proud, God is opposed to us. We might as well be getting in the boxing rink with God. You are going to be clobbered. You are going to be smashed. I can't imagine boxing a human. On the cross, Jesus Christ took our clobbering. Jesus Christ took our being smashed, and that is our only hope. God responds to the proud, but he also responds to the humble. It says, but gives grace to the humble, the end of verse 5. The Greek word for humble can include those who are brought low by circumstances, those who are oppressed. But Peter's focus is the attitude of, of lowliness and not the economics of being lowly. It's, it's not just all of the oppressed of the world. It's those who are lowly in heart. The humble are those who, who perceive with accuracy what we're talking about here, what they deserve apart from Christ. Those who say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Those who say, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Those who run to Christ rather than away from Christ. Those who have not gotten over the cross. Those for whom the cross is not just something in their past. But those who are still unraveled by this mystery, by this splendor, by this wonder. That is the humble. God gives grace, his favor to the humble. He does good to them and he is for their good. He is inclined to them. He blesses them. They are in the center of his favor for eternity. God is gracious to those who have a low view of themselves. We have to clarify here. No one is humble without God's grace. No one is humble without God's grace. Our humility is an act of God's grace. It's by God's grace that we respond to our righteous, our unrighteousness, like or our presumed righteousness, like a tax collector, not a Pharisee. That's all of his grace. Without his grace, we would be like the Pharisee. So our humility. The fact that we are humble, the fact that we have been humbled, the fact that we want to clothe ourselves in humility is all of God's grace. This is Peter's point here. Those who are humble receive grace from God, but the proud are his enemies. And so he's saying to them, who are you? He's not just saying, hey guys, be humble so that you get grace from God. It's way more stern than that. If you are proud, you will be destroyed. That has no part among God's people. That is not the description of a saint. The humble are those who receive grace. And where does that humility come from? Because God's working in our heart. So if you are in Jesus Christ, you've already begun being humbled, right? You have to clothe yourselves with humility. There is a true way in which you have to become what you are. You have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to have the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Peter's giving them a stern warning. If you want to be those in the church who are proud, that's the character of someone who's God's enemy, not someone who receives his favor. Cornerstone Bible Church needs constant grace from God if it's going to bring glory to God. And God gives grace to the humble. So we need to embrace humility and keep cultivating humility and clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. Cornerstone Bible Church is not going to function according to God's design with faithful shepherds and submissive sheep without humility from both elders and flock. So in humility, we must hear God speak from God's word. What is God's word saying? The elders must humbly exposit and make as clear as possible for you what God's word says. But we also have to be eager for your questions regarding how we've interpreted it and how we've explained it. We want to always be ready to hear you come with whatever questions you have. And the sheep must humbly submit to what scripture says, what God says in his word. But they also have to humbly ask questions. 
right? We have to make sure we get God's word right. So we're all involved in that together. Me as I explain God's word and you as you come and ask questions humbly. In humility, we together must cultivate holiness. This is, this is, this is not a one on many job. It's not a many on one job, although I welcome that too. It is all of us on all of us. We, as elders, have to be humble in calling you, the saints, to obey God's commands. We have to be humble when giving counsel in how you are to apply them. Particularly humility when we say, well, God's word says this, but I'm concerned about you applying it here. And the sheep have to be humbly listening and humbly submitting when they can. Of course, not going against their conscience. When there is a concern regarding the commands given, the counsel given, the sheep have to humbly come to the elders. Come to us and say, brother, I think you're off. I don't think you've explained God's word. I think you're going too far. Do that, please. We have to clothe ourselves with humility, all of us to one another. In humility, we must correct one another. In, in humility, we must receive correction. The sheep have to practice Matthew 18. The elders have to practice Matthew 18, the process that we have of confronting sin in one another. You have to confront sin in my life. I need to confront sin in your life. And you all need to be confronting sin in one another's life. We're not clothing ourselves in humility if we're ignoring God's instructions and how we're to be used in one another's lives. When the elders fall short of their elder qualifications, Lord willing, we won't, but if we do, come to us. Come humbly and express your concerns. And by God's grace, we're clothing ourselves with humility and, and we'll respond humbly too. And if the flocks become concerned, I know that this comes to the what ifs, those scary what ifs. What if the flock, I mean, what if the elders are lording it over them? Well, then the flock has to confront us in humility. In God's word, it tells us what we do with elders who persist in sin. They must be rebuked in the presence of all. God's word has the answers to this. And in humility, we must fulfill the great commission together. The elders must lead with humility in how they believe we can best steward God's people and the resources that God's given so that God's gospel is spread and so that the kingdom advances and the sheep must follow with humility, even if the direction isn't really their thing, even if maybe their driving passion is Fullerton instead of North Africa or North Africa instead of Fullerton. The elders have to be ready to listen to the, hear the sheep's concerns. The sheep must be ready to hear how the elders explain. See, this is beautiful. Who is who's sufficient for these things? This is not us, right? I know how Melissa and I struggle in our marriage. I'm not trying to be confessional here, but like there's a lot of pride, right? There's a lot of pride in all of your marriages, I think. I mean, maybe some of you it's not, but right? It's, it's not natural to us. But the Lord Jesus Christ to make, came to make us like himself to make us servants like he is a servant. See, God's design is not a mistake. This puts God on display. In 1 Peter 2, be, 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 before Peter launches into how the citizens are to submit to the government and how slaves are to submit to their masters, and how wives are to submit to their husbands. He takes a break. Now he's talking about how the sheep are submit to the elders. It's a beautiful reason why. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We've come full circle to that whole stage idea. Right? What we do here. This interaction of, of sinful people and other sinful people's lives. This is all about God's glory. This is all about making Christ's power known. So that when, come, when someone comes in and say, wow, they follow him? It's, it's mysterious, right? The, the lost world wonders at what goes on here. 
It puts Christ on display. Brothers and sisters, as we clothe ourselves in humility, God's favor will rest on Cornerstone Bible Church. The world keeps its power with its fist, with manipulation, with shame tactics, but God's flock persists through humility. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for the commands in your word, and I thank you that they're hard. I thank you, Father, that it is hard to have pride exposed. Lord, I think I can be, I know I can be so satisfied, I think many of us can be so satisfied as we kind of uh, pay attention to some of the manifestations of pride, as we try to curb sinful behavior here and there, try to be more gentle, and that's, that's good and brings glory to you. But Lord, I pray that you would do something even deeper in many of our hearts, Lord. That we would see how much of our lives evolve around us. That instead of you being the sun at the center of our universe, Lord, that we are. That we are way too comfortable, all things being from us and through us and for us, Lord. And how terrifying it is. Lord, when, when, when Isaiah is undone, he saw that. When Isaiah, Peter said to go away, he saw that. And when we have a poorness in spirit and a mourning over sin and a meekness, a hunger and thirst after righteousness, God, it's us seeing a little bit of that. And yet, Lord, we don't see it as we ought. You've been patient with us. You haven't exposed the full extent of our, our pride. But I ask, Lord, that you would expose more of it, Lord. And expose it in our relationships with one another. Help us to be people who do hard things in one another's life. Help us to be people who are not content with one another coasting in their spiritual lives. Help us to be faithful as elders and submissive as sheep. Help us, Lord, uh, to be uh, refined as we work out how this relationships work in one another's life. Help us, Lord, to be increasingly humbled, for Christ to be increasingly glorified, for the cross to be increasingly powerful to us, for us to become increasingly like Christ, for, for really miracles of transformation to be done in our marriages and in our care groups. Lord, we, we want these miracles to be done in our kids' lives, Lord. Lord, we, we want patience with our haughty eyes, Lord, but we want you to remove them and to give them humble eyes. Father, none of this is work we can do ourselves, but yet we rejoice, Lord. We rejoice that those of us who are in your son, Lord, you've already changed us, Lord. You're no longer opposed to us. You're not our enemy. And we, we, we take refuge in your son, and we ask you to make us more like him. In Jesus' name, amen.